Oh, good morning. Welcome to Campus House. My name is Rick. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad you could join us this morning. And uh, in the summer, there's a lot of transients, a lot of people in and out. So if you haven't been here with us, I'll let you know we're, in, we're into just the first few weeks of a sermon series on the Old Testament book of First and Second Kings. Uh, and in particular, we're looking at two prophets that show up in those books, Elijah and Elisha. Uh, They're considered two of the greatest prophets in the Bible. And this morning, we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 19. And there's not going to be any slides up there for you to look at, so I'd encourage you, because we're looking at a a story and we're going to look at it in depth, it's a little easier to see the whole thing at once. If you have a Bible uh, or there's some on the ends of your rows and you'd like to follow along as we read 1 Kings 19, 1 to 18. And this is about the prophet Elijah. If you're new to the Bible, uh, Kings is about the first quarter of the way in from the front cover. So 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 to 18. This is the word of the Lord. It says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely. If by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came to a broom bush and sat under it, and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush, and he fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate. And he drank, and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out, stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Well, then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper, and when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak back over his face, went out, and stood at the mouth of the cave. And a voice said to him, 
What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword, and I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king of Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. This is quite the story. It could be a little challenging, right, for us so culturally removed to understand it. But the great value of the book of Kings is that it presents to us a short history of what it was like for godly people to live in a time when many of their leaders and their nation had rejected God. And it demonstrates that God is in control even during the darkest times of history, even during the reign of the worst political leaders. And God does what He does in every book of the Bible and in every era of history. He confronts human sinfulness. He keeps His promises and He stands ready to forgive all those who will turn back to Him. And yet this is exactly the struggle that in 1 Kings 19, Elijah faces. Though he has seen God do amazing things, he is currently struggling with how God is actually keeping his promises and how all of Elijah's courageous efforts on God's behalf are making any difference at all in his community. Essentially, Elijah in this passage has come to the end of himself. He literally says that, I've had enough. Take my life. He's reached the end of himself. So this great chapter is about helping us, who are God's people, when we've we've had enough, when we've been doing good things but we see no reward for it, when we are burned out emotionally or spiritually, when we are at the end of ourselves, it helps us to see that when we have failed or feel like we have failed, that our efforts to live for God in this world, though they might seem fruitless and they might seem futile, And that even the greatest servants of God, like Elijah, can seem to lose their way, what we find is that God has a tender care for His people who are caught in despair, who are wondering whether God is actually working good in the world, when it seems like we're the only ones who even care about that. What do you do when you felt caught up in despair? What do you do when it feels like you have failed after putting in so much effort for something? Through Elijah's experience, we're going to see that God has this tender care for his people, that when we are at the end of ourselves and our hope is in jeopardy, God strengthens us, God speaks to us, and God assures us. But in order to get to those things, to see how exactly it is that God does this, we've got to look a little deeper into this story because it's challenging and it's tricky for us being Westerners 
thousands of years later to try to understand. So let's search out the story to seek to understand it so that then we can see how does God strengthen us? How does He speak to us? How does He assure us? Especially in times of darkness and despair. One writer has described Elijah really well. She says, Elijah is a star in the Old Testament. He multiplies food for a starving widow and her son. In chapter 17, he raises someone from the dead. He crushes Baal's prophets in a spectacular standoff, which is what we looked at last week. And he ascends to heaven in a whirlwind. That's right, in 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah doesn't ever actually die. He's so unique that God actually just brings him to heaven. The New Testament confirms that Elijah is a great prophet and one of the stars of the Old Testament. When Jesus and Luke want to emphasize John the Baptist's unique spirit and power, they compare him to Elijah. Some people even mistake Jesus for being a reincarnated Elijah. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus appears with two very important Old Testament people. Who are they? Moses and Elijah. And yet, despite this, despite the fact that Elijah holds some of the greatest power of the Old Testament, and he is seen as one of the greatest prophets of all time, the Scriptures don't present Elijah as distant, untouchable, or otherworldly. Because what did we just read? He's in despair. He's wandering in a wilderness. He's flesh and blood and human just like us. And even after a stunning victory where 450 prophets of Baal against him, one prophet of God, he wins. He's yet dejected and despairing. In the New Testament, the writer and apostle James in chapter 5 says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Even the greatest people of God are human. Elijah did great things for God. He had great faith in God, and yet he has a nature just like us. So last week, we have to remind ourselves a bit of the context of this story because it won't make sense otherwise. Last week, we looked at this powerful event in 1 Kings 18, those 450 prophets of Baal versus Elijah. And he single-handedly defeats them. And how did he do it? The Bible tells us he did it very simply. He prayed. Elijah prayed. The prophets of Baal had also prayed, but they were praying to a false god who didn't exist. And then they start trying to work themselves up into a frenzy. Some of us actually might think of this like how God works as well. We've got to do enough for God. We've got to make ourselves pleasing to God, and then He will do what we want. The prophets of Baal start cutting themselves. They start crying out to Baal, asking that he would take their offering, but he does nothing. All Elijah does is say, Lord, would you send your fire and take up this offering? And he does. He doesn't have to convince God. God already knows what he needs, and he does it simply by asking. He doesn't have to bribe God. And throughout Elijah's life, we've seen this. He's this ordinary man, but he does extraordinary things because he has an extraordinary God. So when he's confronting the idolatry of his political leaders in his community, this is what he prayed in chapter 18, verse 36 and 37. Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and have done all these things by your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know you, Lord, are God, and you will turn their hearts back again. 
God did answer his prayer. He did send fire down. And the people did eventually respond and say, the Lord, he really is God. Because see, the the big struggle that's happening in chapter 18 can be summed up in verse 21. Before anything happens, Elijah comes to the people and he says to them, his people in this community of Israel, and he says, choose. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. The whole reason this prophet standoff occurs, this contest between gods, is something that we actually can relate to as well. And it's a very simple question. He's simply saying, is God real? Because if he is, don't you think that should have something to do with how your life looks? Is God real? And if so, won't you follow him? If God is who he says he is, why wouldn't you worship him is the question. This is a serious matter because so many of us think, well, we're not worshiping idols. I'm not back there with some weird statue called Baal, bowing down. No, but for those of us in our world, we have different forms of idolatry. Ours looks different, and for many of us, it's a comfortable detachment from the things of God in general. But the thing is, if God is real, this is of greatest importance. If he can judge us, we want to know that. If he offers healing to the world and we could have that, wouldn't we want that? If he can give peace and joy and make everything good again, wouldn't we want to join him? The Bible testifies that God is good and powerful, a loving father and an honest judge. And if you have a good father who takes actions of love towards you and speaks words of love over you, but you just reject it, ignore it, and have a comfortable detachment from it, or if he's a good, honest judge, would you say if you're on court, in court and on trial that you're like, well, I'm just kind of detached from my trial? Having a good father makes a world of difference. There's so much research on that. Being on trial, you, want to, you would care about the outcome of your trial. This, these things matter. If this is who God is, he's a father, he's a judge, he cares about the whole world, then we have to follow him and not just our own ideas about how stuff works. So Elijah is praying to God, and God shows that he is real and he's really powerful. And at the end of that chapter, chapter 18, the last verse It says, the power of the Lord came on Elijah. So Elijah's been working in the power of the Lord. And yet, somehow the story we just read, after Elijah shows, as much as you can have evidence of a supernatural God, he essentially shows that. God shows up in his time and his place to demonstrate his power. He has power on him, and yet by this point we've seen him say, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. What is going on here? How did Elijah go from this incredible power of God, seeing the reality of the existence of God, to then wanting to die, despairing, feeling dejected? 
Well, Elijah's a lot like the rest of us. His feelings of, of failure are strongly connected to his expectations. And we saw Elijah's prayer, right? He prays that fire would come down. He prays that the people would know God and that God would turn their hearts back to him. Because he thinks, look, when people see what God can do, when people see what God has done, they will turn back. And then what happens? We see nothing of the people turning back to God. And the political rulers and leaders, that's who Ahab and Jezebel are. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, they say, instead of seeing the power of God, they say, we're going to do to you what you just did to us. You're a dead man, Elijah. So Elijah thinks, what more could you need? God has shown up in our world in a crazy powerful way, and nobody cares. This is uh, his indictment later on in, chat, in verse 10 and verse 14, he says the same exact thing. And essentially, it's like he's bringing a civil court case against the people of Israel to God. When he sees God on the mountain, he says this twice, verse 10 and verse 14, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty, but the Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword, and I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Elijah is saying, I am the only one in my, that I know of who actually still cares about what God has to say. Now, he knows there's other prophets. Those are back a couple chapters. There's other prophets of God. But all of them are actually hiding in a cave, not able to do anything because Jezebel is also seeking to kill them. And so it would seem that Elijah's living in this incredibly dark time in a very dark world where there's not a lot of hope for things to change. That even when God shows up powerfully, that doesn't seem to be enough to convince anyone. And so it says that Ahab and Jezebel are trying to kill him. But there's something we have to look at very, very closely in this story. Look at the beginning of verse 3. Once they threatened him, it says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now, i got to spend a few minutes on this because it's important how we interpret the passage. Because we've seen in verse 4, Elijah says, I want you to take away my life. But you know, isn't this a little strange, right? Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And Elijah runs away and then says, Lord, would you kill me? If he wants to die, just stay where you are. Jezebel is glad to do it. And so it says, he was afraid and ran away. But the reason why I'm bringing this up is really important. Some of you won't have this in your Bibles. Unfortunately, some of the Bible translations don't put this footnote. If you have the NIV, at least it does. And there's a footnote where it will say, Elijah was afraid. If you have a footnote, there's a little letter after that. And it should say at the bottom of your page something like, or Elijah saw. Doesn't that sound very, very different to us? Like, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Or is it? Elijah saw and ran for his life. All right, we won't go too deep into this, but we've got to explain why are there two? Well, the Bible is composed of a number of manuscripts that have been collected. And you might think, oh man, see, does the Bible contradict itself? Does somebody write something different in the Bible? Do we have competing views of the Bible? Well, we have hundreds of manuscripts that actually say some of both. They either say Elijah was afraid or Elijah saw. And so we have textual variance. It means there's a variance in the text and we should understand it shapes the story. Most of the time when this happens on occasion, 
It's so minor that it doesn't change the meaning of the text at all. It's very rare in general, but even when it does, it's very rare that you think, oh, that different meaning makes me read the text differently. This is one of the rare times where it just might be a little different when we read Elijah feared versus Elijah saw. And which one was more likely to be original? Well, it makes sense that it would be Elijah feared. That makes sense to us. But it's really weird for us to read Elijah saw. And it's actually more likely than that it's Elijah saw. Because in Hebrew, the words for fear and saw actually look almost the same. So to us, in English, those are very different words. But in Hebrew, they're composed of the same three letters. The word fear and the word saw. And it's very possible that Uh, uh, someone copying down a manuscript, a scribe, would have accidentally changed it to fear because one, it makes sense in the passage, and two, it looks a whole lot like like the word saw in Hebrew. But if it means saw, we can understand Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. But if he's afraid and running for his life, why does he ask to die? But if he saw, Elijah saw and ran for his life, what is it that he sees? I think it's what we've been getting at already. It makes more sense of the path. Elijah is not a coward. He has constantly been one of the only ones willing to stand for God in a dark, dark time of history. He's not, he's in despair, yes, but is he afraid? There's not a lot that seems to point to me. He gets a bad rap here. A lot of people think, oh, suddenly Elijah becomes a coward and he just wants to die and he's running away like a scaredy cat. But all of this seems very on purpose. He runs further than he has to. He runs from Jezebel, but he doesn't just run from Jezebel a few miles away. He runs hundreds of miles away. It's not like he leaves from Philadelphia and goes to D.C. He goes from Philadelphia to North Carolina. He's way out of range. But he seems to be seeking God. He goes out into solitude to pray. And he prays because what did he see? He sees that nothing is going to change. And the thing that he's upset about, did you hear his prayer in verse 10 and 14? He doesn't doesn't just say, God, I'm afraid. He says, Lord, don't you see the people don't care for you? What Elijah saw is that it seemed like nothing in his world was going to change. He saw and understood, or at least felt, this is the place where despair comes in. He's despairing that God's plan is actually going anywhere. He's supposed to be a big part of God's plan in this period of history, and nothing seems to be happening. Make sense? You know, it's, it's, uh, so in this case, what we're getting at is Elijah's not just despairing because he didn't get his own way. He's not just despairing because someone's chasing down his life. He's actually sad. We could say he's depressed for God's sake. Well, that's a little different than just being someone who's selfish and wants to get what you want to get and you're sad that God didn't give it. He is depressed for God's sake. Have you ever been depressed for God's sake? I have a student who recently graduated not too long ago and we would meet fairly regularly and she would describe almost every time she, lived, she was in a sorority house and almost every time we talked, what she would bring up was how much pain she was in that her sorority sisters continued to do some of the things they were doing even as she sought to love them, to share the gospel with them. Her friends would say, why are you different? How come you seem so different? What is it? And she would tell them, it's Jesus. He changed my life. I, 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 don't, I didn't do this to myself. 
But I knew that I'd made many mistakes, and yet God had mercy on me, and I've received that. It changed my life. But over and over, her friends would say, oh, okay, I kind of want that, but also, I'll, I'll deal with it later. And she would come in, and times she was in tears. That's how much she loved her friends and how much she feared for the mistakes or the things that they were doing in, her, in their lives. And she would, she would come in and say, why? Why isn't God saving them? Doesn't God say he cares about us? Doesn't God say he wants people to know him? Why is it that I'm telling my friends about him and nothing's changing? She was depressed for God's sake. She, she's like Elijah. She understands the spirit of Elijah. There's something noble about this sadness. It's not just about not getting what we want from God. It's sadness about not getting what God wants from God. In one sense, then, that's exactly where Elijah's story leads us. He is at the end of himself because he seems to think, we're at the end of God's plan and it ain't working. Is God really at work in my life, turning things around for good? Seriously. And yet, at the end of ourselves, what we'll see is God has this tender care for his people. The first thing I want to show you is how God strengthens us. So in the first nine verses, we saw this, right? We've been looking at the beginning of that part, but we remember there's a lot of pairs that happen in this passage. Twice an angel comes and feeds Elijah. Twice God asks Elijah, what are you doing here? And twice Elijah says, the people have turned against you. You know, back in, in uh, the Old Testament, they didn't have bold font. So if you wanted to reiterate something, even if it historically happened, it happened multiple times, so you would know, hey, pay attention to this. It's really important. And so the fact that these things keep happening twice emphasize for us what God is doing. And the first one that happens twice is God strengthens Elijah. Do you see what happens? Verse 5, all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank. And then God lets him rest again. He lies down and goes back to sleep. Elijah is actually and emotionally exhausted. And you know what? The thing is, he's, he's way out in the wilderness, which is, there's two geographic things that are really important in this text, too. One, Elijah goes to the wilderness, which is the place of history where you're in trouble, you're wandering, you feel lost. Elijah takes himself there as if his geography was supposed to match his soul. And yet, hundreds of miles away from the nearest Israelite grocery store, God feeds Elijah. He goes to Beersheba, the bed and breakfast of Beersheba, apparently, where angels serve you. And here he gets bread and water from God. And what does it say? It says that he, first time he just eats it and drinks, goes back to sleep. Second time he eats and drinks, but then the angel says something. The journey is too much for you, in verse 7. The journey is too much for you. The, the angel of the Lord knows, and he knows where Elijah is trying to go. Elijah's going on this extremely long journey to the mountain of God, the same mountain, this is the other location, the same mountain that Moses received the Ten Commandments, the same mountain where Moses went into a little cave like this, like Elijah does, and he sees God in, an earth, in a wind and earthquake and fire. This is kind of a repeat of the story of Moses, but in the life of Elijah, 
but there's some differences, so we have to see. But the first thing is, Elijah's not even going to make it there unless God sustains him. And so this is really important that God strengthens him. It says that he was strengthened by this food to travel 40 days and 40 nights. Again, another thing that happens in the history of of Israel a lot. 40 days, 40 nights, 40 years, 40, lots of 40s going on when there's big things happening in the Old Testament. So Elijah is strengthened to continue on his journey, even though he feels like he's wandering in exile. God provides for him. And the interesting thing is, right, when Elijah prays to God and asks for death, God brings him strength to sustain his life. Have you ever been there? I won't get into this deeply, but today on college campuses, we have a serious problem with suicide. We have this serious issue with what happens when we feel that we failed, when we are in despair. We can be like Elijah. We might want someone or something to take our lives, and sometimes people take that into their own hands. This is telling us when we feel that we're wandering, yet we should still, we can still seek the strength of God. When all else seems dark, it just might be God has something else going on that we can't see. He strengthens him to continue on the journey, though he doesn't tell him all the things the journey will hold. God can provide in some really strange ways. And I'm not saying you should go around asking or looking for that in one sense, but Elijah saw that God provided for him in an interesting way. When I was in grad school, I had very little money, and almost every semester I never knew how I was going to pay for uh, my fees for tuition. And there was one point in St. Louis, I was in grad school, and I was driving through uh, late at night, and I stopped at a red light. And then the light turned green, and I went on a left turn, and a lady going the other way just came screaming through the other red light that was for her and and T-boned my car. It's a pretty old car. It's pretty beat up already. Uh, so it was totaled. And I was fortunately pretty much okay. But then I got the check for, from the insurance company for the totaled amount of the car. And after fixing the car, because I decided to keep it because it was just mostly body work, after fixing the car, the amount that was left was the exact amount that I had needed in order to pay for my tuition. And I had actually been going through a pretty strong bout of depression, which I've struggled with off and on through my life. And I'd been feeling depressed, and suddenly it's just, you know, I I prayed after that, Lord, I'd love for you not to provide for me through traumatic experiences. But (laughs) he did still provide for me, and overall, I was fine. And really, overall, so was my car. It could have been a lot worse. I'm not saying that you should expect that or look for that or that I asked for that in that way. But God can actually provide in the weirdest of ways, in the strangest of places, and in the darkest feelings we might be in, even when we haven't asked him. Elijah doesn't ask for provision. He asks for death, and God brings him life. And that's so that he can carry on um, and and so that he can go on to the next thing God's going to call him to do. And this is the thing about it. God gives this personal care for us. And so if you've been in despair, but you've had a meal, if you've been in despair, but you find out someone prayed for you like six years ago, if you've been in despair and you thought God isn't working at all and then a check shows up just when you needed it, if you've been in despair and you had even contemplated suicide, but something stopped you, these are these personal moments of care that are, God, that are God's. If anything good, even little, happens in those moments, 
It's God's personal care for us. See, Elijah received bread and water, but the gospel is going to point us to the fact that Jesus is the bread and the water. He is the bread of life and the living water. The whole story of this is going towards the New Testament where we see the greatest fulfillment of personal care is found in Jesus who comes to sustain us not for a few moments or through a desert or through our hardest times only, but into eternity. He's the bread of life. He is the living water, the the gospel of John says. In this world, our great difficulties far too often take our eyes away from seeing God's care. And like Elijah, we just see the circumstances seem only dark. But in tangible ways, God is often providing. And even bigger, in a bigger story kind of way, he provided Christ to overcome the darkness of the world. But the thing is, we have to receive that from him. And that's the second thing. It's not only that God gives strength to us when we're in dark times, but God speaks to us in these dark times. Did you see? That's really where Elijah's story is going. He heads to the mountain of God, the place where God speaks. He wants to go there because he wants to talk with God. And when he gets there, God speaks to him first. And he asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? And I don't think it's a condemning, hey, what are you doing here? Get off my property. He's not accusing Elijah of trespassing. He strengthened him so he could get to the mountain. He knows he's coming. This isn't, this isn't God being angry. What is God doing? He's asking Elijah, giving him the opportunity to unburden his heart. What are you doing here, Elijah? Why did you come to see me in this way and in this place at this time? And Elijah's response was, of course, the people have all walked away from you and I might be the only one left. Who cares about what you're doing in the world, God? You know what's interesting then, right? He's, God speaks to Elijah, but he doesn't do it in the wind. He doesn't do it in the earthquake. He doesn't do it in the fire. It says he speaks to him in this small whisper, this small, quiet voice. Some people take this to mean that that's what we got to do. We just have to go find solitude and God's going to speak quietly to us when we're on a mountain or in the woods. But that's not really the point. At other points in the Bible, like we already mentioned with Moses, God does speak in loud and powerful ways. You know, the interesting thing about how God speaks in loud and powerful ways and in miraculous ways even is often that it's a judgment. Think about some of the loudest times God speaks in the Bible. What are they? The ten plagues. Where through Moses, God is judging the Egyptians for holding people as slaves. What does he also do in Egypt? He parts the Red Sea. The people walk through it. But the whole thing is the sea comes down on the Egyptians and they get washed away. What did we just see in 1 Kings 18? This loud, big thing that God did was a fireball comes down from heaven and consumes everything that was against, uh, like consumes uh, the, the offering. And the prophets of Baal are defeated. So many of the big things. We often want God to do big things. God, if you would just do this great, mighty, big thing, then I'll know that you're for me. Then I know that you've spoken to me. Then I know that you love me. But so much he's saying, so many of the big things are actually judgments. That doesn't mean that he's not for us. We're going to get to that. But so many of the big things in our lives are not necessarily uh, how God is going to answer us every time. Here, what he does is say, Elijah... I'm just going to whisper my word to you. And this is the point 
of God's word, as we're going to see in the final section here, verses 15 to 18, when God speaks to Elijah, what he tells him. The point of God's word and the good news of when God speaks is that every time he speaks, especially when we're in despair, darkness, is he does so to confirm his promises. And his promise is, I'm not done yet. So when I'm sitting there saying, Lord, I'm done, I've had enough, he's saying, I haven't. I'm not done yet. I'm still at work. My purposes don't fail. The whole point of my word to you is that it reveals my will, which is to say, I'm up here caring about you and moving my plans and purposes forward day by day by day. God's word again and again and again says, I don't fail. Even when I look to be failing, I am achieving all the things that I have planned to do. And again, the greatest place we can look to that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because if you were to look that day, everyone runs away from Jesus because he looks like an abject failure. You can't go around being king or being God and saying things like that when you are dead on a piece of wood. God is often doing this kind of thing. When it looks darkest and bleakest and things look like most failing, most failing has happened in God's story. It's at the same time, often when he's doing these great reversals. You thought I failed. Turns out I can win through failing. Beat that. The word of God is there to tell us over and over and over again. And one of the great things that Jesus does right before he dies on the cross, he's hanging on the cross, his lungs are losing air because you suffocate on the cross. And when he's suffocating, do you know the last words that he says? He whispers it. It is finished. All through the story of the Bible, God's people are often in despair like Elijah because they're like, Are you working? Are you going to save us? Are you going to fix everything? Are you going to set the world right? And then it seems like God doesn't. Well, on the cross, God is saying, I did now. It's finished. And Jesus doesn't say, I'm finished. Oh, my life's over. I'm finished. He says, it. It is finished. The mission of God, the plan of God, the purpose of of God, which has been going on and on and on in this moment, I have completed it. So it matters if you come to the cross and you understand what it is and you know what it is, and you say, this is God showing himself and speaking to us to say, this is the most important reality. If God has a plan and he says on the cross it is finished, then it really matters that we know Christ and we know what he has done and we receive that plan from God himself. It is finished. I have accomplished what I set out to accomplish. And at the same time, this becomes finally assurance. God strengthens us to keep going on the journey even when it's dark and we don't know and understand what he's doing. But on the way, he speaks to us. He speaks to us through his word and he seeks to reassure us that this is how he works, that he will not and does not fail. But then he tells us what it is he's doing. And this is what he tells Elijah, verse 15 to 18, when he brings him assurance. And he says, I know, basically, Elijah, I know the people have failed. I know the people don't care about me. I know that I've just done a great and powerful thing and they haven't turned back to me. But go back the way that you came. Go back to the desert of Damascus and there I want you to anoint three people, Hazael, Jehu, and Elisha. What he's saying is, I'm not done yet. Go raise up the next generation. Go train them to do my will and my things. I've already decided they're going to. I'm not done 
And the interesting thing is these are people from all over the place. One of them's basically a wicked Gentile, but God's going to use him to do his work. He's going to work through, instead of just only fireballs and powerful miracles and acts of judgment from the sky, he's saying, I just work also through political processes, through leaders, through rulers, through normal systems of life. I am at work every day, well beyond what you can imagine. So go raise up the next generation. And then he also says what they're going to do is bring judgment. But he also says there's mercy. There's a remnant of people, 7,000 people, who haven't bowed down to Baal. And then this is what we see, friends. What is it that brings us assurance? What is God's word bringing us assurance about? It's this. Justice and mercy. Always and in every way, the story of God is constantly putting these things together. And how is justice, the judgment of God, good news? God says, I'm raising up some people who are going to wield the sword. They're going to, they're going to bring judgment into the world for me. That's actually really, really good news. Because if you are, are like me and you look around and you feel despair at the darkness of the world, or you feel despair at the way God seems to not be working in your own life, and you're wearied and you're burdened and you're sad looking at evil and suffering and dysfunction in the world, and then God comes and says, I'm going to judge that, that's great news for us. That's hugely important news for us. That's an act of love on God's behalf because what he's saying is, I will not ultimately tolerate the evil, the dysfunction, and the suffering that you see. I will end it. That's part of what Jesus means when he says, it's finished. That stuff is no longer the power over the world. I am. So friends, it's good news that God will bring just all that is sexually wrong and broken in this world. It's good news that he will cut off those who have hated others through racism, sexism, contempt, harassment, bullying. It is good news that cheating, stealing, adultery, envy will no longer be in this world. At the same time, it's real bad news if we've participated in any of that. So the judgment is good news and it's bad news at the same time. And this is why the other half of the story matters. You know, I get really frustrated hearing about the street preacher who comes on campus here sometimes because he doesn't actually share good news. He does talk about judgment, which actually, again, is good news because evil is going to be eradicated. But does he ever get to hope? Because the Bible always puts mercy with God's judgment. And here we see it. God says, Elijah, I know you feel alone. I know you think you're alone in this. I've got 7,000 other people who are doing things for me. They're not as big and powerful as you. Oh, but they're there, quietly working out their salvation in their lives, living and loving for me in their neighborhoods. There's 7,000 of them, and there's going to be more. There's also mercy for us. And that means those who have accepted this good news, those who have said, Lord, I deserve nothing but your judgment. I'm a part of the problem. Would you forgive me? And he says, yes. For those who come before him and do turn back, there is great hope. There is great mercy. Lord, I deserve your judgment, but instead I cling to Jesus where you said it is finished. Judgment is over for me. Court is adjourned. And there is grace upon grace. I no longer stand before you in fear that I might be part of the problem. But instead, you have given me new life. That's the offer that God gives us in mercy, that we don't get what we deserve. We get what he deserves. 
which is only and ever the good things in the universe. This is the power for persisting in despair, that God assures us his plan isn't going to stop. So friends, one day, he says, there will be a final judgment, not just a few people who are ruling a country and exercise judgment with a sword in a court of law, but there is a final judgment, a day when we will all stand before God. And on that day, we will be there. The question is, is God real? Is that really going to happen? It's hard to fathom in our world. But if it is true, then the thing you need on that day is the great mercy that Jesus gives on the cross when he says, it's finished. So we hold fast to him. So friends, we're going to take communion now. And this is what communion represents. It represents the judgment and the mercy of God. See, Elijah says, I'm broken because he thought God's plan wasn't succeeding. But on the cross, Jesus is broken so that God's plan would succeed. Elijah says, I'm broken. I don't see the good stuff in my life. The world is dark. And yet on the cross, Jesus is broken so that God's plan will fully and finally succeed. This is what we celebrate in communion. Remember what we say? This is my bread. This is the bread. Jesus' body broken for you. And then he pours out his blood and said, this wine is representative of my blood for the forgiveness of sin, for mercy. I was broken under judgment, but I have done that so that you might receive mercy. Friends, if he's yours, then communion is for you. This is a tremendous celebration, a reminder even in despair that he is for you, that he entered the despair, took on the judgment, and instead gave us mercy. So we celebrate that. But if you don't know Christ and you haven't, come before him and said, I don't deserve this, but you've given it and I receive it, then don't take communion. Take Jesus. Ask, God, are you real? Are you there? Is this really how you work? Show me that I might know you, that I might turn back, that I might sit, not sit under any judgment, but sit only under mercy. Oh, to grace, how great a day.